You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This podcast is from our series, Life in the Body, presented by Dr. Bill Smith, member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. So I'm very happy to have um, some family members visiting today. I'm in a competition with Carl Nebbia, one of our other teachers. Every time he preaches, the place is packed with all these family members, so... My sister and her husband, Lyndon Michael Duckworth, are here, and also uh, Jessica Smith's parents, David and Luann Hill, are here, and so we're happy to have them here. Uh, just more blessings in the family. All We always prayed for all three of our children since the time they were born that they would marry um, a godly person. Uh, what came with that is also godly in-laws, people who love the Lord, and so it's good to have you guys here today. Unfortunately, that may have thrown off our typical seating pattern for some people, <laughs> so we ask your forgiveness. I preached about forgiveness two weeks ago. Last week, uh, Scott and Denise weren't here, and so I sat in Scott's chair. <laughs> Scott right there. I found out why he sits there. It's the only chair in here. It has two switches underneath. One switch is a heater on the bottom, and the back is a vibrator kind of thing. <laughs> That's why he always looks so peaceful every Sunday when he's here. <laughs> uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you in laughter because you give us a, such great joy, and we come to you today with your names in our minds and on our hearts. And the name we want to explore today, which is also who you are in essence, is love. So we pray, Father, today that you would teach us about how to love one another. For it's in Jesus, then we pray and for his sake. Amen and amen. So the previous series we did on 1 Samuel, Steve offered the various teachers. We have six teachers here to speak. And when I saw it was on 1 Samuel, I just stepped back a little bit and let other people take that, that passage of Scripture on. When he said, well, we're going to do another series, and one of the topics is going to be on love, I jumped at that chance to be able to talk on this topic. Because in a way, I've been studying this formally for quite a long time. And the study began in earnest when I was doing my doctoral program. So the Lord led me to, and by led me, I mean forced me, to attend a a doctoral program at Oxford Graduate School whose mission is to produce Christian scholars. What they're trying to do there is to recover or restore what Harvard and Yale originally were. And they have have abandoned that, that goal, and so that's what they're trying to do. And... They're always encouraging us to think about how our faith informs our discipline and how our discipline informs our faith. So I took a look at that approach, is how does my faith inform my discipline, which is in the area of organizational development and leadership. And I thought about the construct of love and how I might use that construct in this area of organizational development and leadership. And teaching courses in leadership and management negotiation and so on, I realized that this construct of love is never taught anywhere to managers and leaders about how to influence people, yet I think it's a pretty powerful influencing force. I mean, we've all done some pretty amazing things just because of love, right? And then my literature search revealed that very little has been written about it and no formal studies have been done, so I did a statistical study of love. And so the title of my dissertation, which is a little fuzzy there, is The Effect of the Force of Love in Influencing a Positive Organizational Climate, as Perceived by Project Manager of Fortune 500 Companies. You had. <laughs> I didn't, so I just... <laughs> How's this look? Okay. And um, 
I get a sort of similar response when I share this in corporations, a little bit of laughter, and then after the laughter subsides, then people want to know, well, what did you find? Because I identify with that whole construct. But when you mention an organization's love, it's kind of a, we can love our job or our product, but to love each other seems strange to do. And so, uh, simply put, is what I found in studying 10 influencing forces, that the influencing force of love consistently ranked towards the top, about the top three, uh, with, in, with, without regard to personality type, which we talked about a little bit yesterday here, all people, regardless of personality type, respond to love in some way. The number one influencing force was meaningful work. People tended to work harder if they were given meaningful work to do. I mean, after all, how hard do people like to work on things that don't really matter? Right? So by giving meaningful work or explaining the meaningfulness, which sometimes leaders fail to do, they think everybody gets it, to explain the meaningfulness of the work you do, is also interpreted as a loving action. In fact, one of the participants, she said to me, you know, Bill, if I knew that my current manager cared about me, I would give 110%. And I said, well, what are you giving now? She says, you're not writing my name down, are you? I said, no. She goes, I'm giving about 85%. I said, so we could get a 25% return on love. She goes, well, because you have to talk that way in corporations. You just can't talk about loving people, right? You've got to talk about the return on investment and the time to market and those kind of things. Another guy said it like this. He said, when I do things for a manager, I'm doing them because I have to. When I do things for a leader, I do it because I want to. And then it occurred to me that sometimes, at least I'll speak for myself, sometimes I see Jesus as a manager. But it's when I see him as a leader, it makes a difference. <laughs> and so... The challenge I had when first trying to do this study, of course, was I'm using the word love in the research, and love means a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. It's kind of a squirrely word for us. Even in the Bible, there's a lot of different words for love. and We use that word with regard to people, but also objects and activities. You might say, I love my wife. I love Netflix. I love God. I love Mexican food. I love my church. I love the Ravens. I love Rita's frozen custard. Well, I do love Rita's frozen custard. It's pretty good. But we're using it because we live in a, a high-context language. How's the word used? Hebrew is also a high-context language, as is Greek and Aramaic. That's why studying the scriptures becomes so fascinating and frustrating and challenging at the same time because you have to figure out what that word meant in that particular context. So love can mean a strong positive emotion or affection. It can mean a score in tennis, which equals zero. It can also mean a term of endearment, as I love my wife, and affection for an activity I love cooking, to be enamored with, to enjoy something, to care for someone or some, someone else. It can also be selfish. It can be selfless. And so in the Hebrew, there's 11 different words for love. In the New Testament, we see four basic words for love, and most of you are familiar with these words, like agape love, unconditional, sacrificial, selfless love, considered the highest form because it's used consistently in the, in the scriptures when the scriptures talk about God's love for his people, for his children. But we also see the word eros, or we get the word erotic love, the physical, sensual love between a husband and wife, which also appears in scripture. Then we have Philea, or brotherly love, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And then we have storge, which is family love, the bond among or between parents, children, and siblings. So looking at the study, I had to come up with what can I use 
to help people understand what I'm trying to, to study. Uh, one of those was an unconditional positive regard, but that was too long. So I basically came up with this when I feel cared for, if I feel my leader cares for me or cares about me. And then uh, I also took a look at another area of my life, which is psychology. And in psychology, we use the word cathexis to define love psychologically. It means the investment of mental or emotional energy in a person, object, or an idea. To to cathect someone is to reduce yourself, to give your mental or emotional energy to them so that they might become more. And you become reduced so that they might become more. But then what happens is that which you invest in others goes out and eventually comes back to you multiplied. And so you actually end up becoming more than you were before you cathected them. God cathected us, did he not? He reduced himself, became less, so that we might become more. And in the process, he also became more as well. So this energy returns to us. A few years ago, I was facilitating a Bible study, and we had mixed age groups in there, and we were talking about essential Christianity, a topic I love to talk about here, how Christians think of what are the essential beliefs that one must have to become a Christian. You hear all kinds of interesting things. There was a young teenage girl in the group, and she very confidently pronounced that to be a Christian, you must obey the commandments of Jesus. I'm going to be honest and open with you. That kind of struck me odd. I've heard of commandments, I've heard of obedience, I've heard of Jesus. I just never heard it strung together like that before. It kind of caught me off guard, because I generally think more in terms of grace. So I said to her, okay, great, so tell me what the commandments of Jesus are, and I will obey them. And she went. That's when I realized, I think her loving parents taught her something over and over and over that, you're supposed to obey the commandments of Jesus and he wants you to clean your room. I don't know how that was actually taught to her, but she was insistent that's that what you're supposed to do, but she couldn't say what they were. And But I began to dismiss that and I went, wait a minute. I remember a song we used to sing with the kids. Remember this song we used to sing, kids? This is my commandment. That you? Oh, he did have a commandment. So I started looking it up. And I found this scripture here. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So I found that one, that's agape love. But also in John, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, there's this other one. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. In Romans, love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another in Galatians. Ephesians says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. Now concerning the love of the brother and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. We must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good ideas. 
now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you may have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart and a humble mind. Above all, maintain constant love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. You know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. By We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And this is his commandment that we should believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He loves since God loved us so much we ought to love one another. So I think maybe she was right. I mean, there was a few verses there. There was about 20 of them we went through. So you certainly get the impression that maybe we're supposed to, to love one another. I mean, the, the, the jury is still out, but I think there's some, some inclination that maybe, maybe that's what we should be doing, to love one another. I recalled that, that old uh, song we used to sing, This is My Commandment. And then I remembered one of the disciples asking Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Master, which is the greatest commandment? Matthew 22, in the law. And Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is basically the same thing. Love, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Do this and you don't have to worry about the other commandments. Now over the years I've heard different preachers and teachers use this verse as a way to sort of convict us that we weren't loving other people enough. I think the premise was that you love yourself a lot and because you do you should be loving everybody else a lot. And that may be true. But in my experience, in counseling and in therapy, I find that working with most Christians, they don't love themselves. In fact, many hate themselves because it feels righteous to do so. Or, at, at best, it's difficult for them to even accept themselves. And there's a sense of righteousness about that. Now, you may have heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again because certain things bear repeating. Should we not have the same attitude towards things that God does? unless you know better than God. But if you don't know better than God, if God loves you, guess what you have to do? Now, I know I'm skating on thin ice here. I understand that. I'm not talking about a selfish, self-centered love. I'm talking about a God-centered love. I'm agreeing with you, Lord. You love me, so I love me. You accept me the way I am, so I accept me the way I am. You see, you can't give anything you don't have. And so, as we look at this approach, I see sometimes this as a barometric reading in a way. I'm already loving my neighbors the way I love myself. I don't accept myself, that's why I don't accept my neighbors. I don't like me, that's why I don't like my neighbors. <laughs> I'm already there. See, if God lets us off the hook, then we have to let ourselves off the hook. So what is the greatest commandment and what is the greatest love? Greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. There's a story that's bantered around over the years. There's, the scholars believe it's a true story. We just can't find the original story, but you may have heard this story before. The situation is told in different ways, but basically there's a situation where there's a bunch of young children. I think it may have been an orphanage, and um, 
one of the kids was sick, and the only way that the doctor could save that, that boy was to give him a blood transfusion, and he, he found the kids who were there who could possibly donate and asked them to volunteer to give blood, and of course, none of them wanted to do that. And finally, after a while, one little boy steps forward and says, I'll do it, and so he hooks up the transfusion. And during the transfusion process, the little boy donating blood asks the doctor, will I die right away or slowly? He thought he was giving his life for this other boy. Doctors don't always explain things clearly to us, do they? <laughs> so, as we, as we think about this topic of love, then it talks about laying our, down our lives for our friends. So, so what does this mean to lay down our lives for our friends? By this we'll know that there is love. Years ago, when the kids were first going to school, there was this guy who walked around the world and wrote a book about it, and they had him, the kids read the book and invited the speaker to come. And uh, he said a lot of interesting things, but one thing that stuck with me was he said what he found as he walked around the world to different places, that he found the most generous people on the planet were the ones who had the least to give. And wherever he went to those places, they would come on in, they'd feed him, they had very little to give. And as, the, as he went to wealthier places, generosity started to, to tail off. That was kind of interesting. That lined up with some other research I stumbled upon some years later about family development. And it turns out that the more wealth a family has, the bigger their home will be, and the bigger the home becomes, the more dysfunctional the family becomes. And why is that? Because they're not forced to learn how to live with each other. They're not forced to learn how to love one another because if things get tough, what can they do? Go to another part of the house, okay? And, and even the parents sometimes would do that. And so when we take a look at what does this look like, love is actually action. First John tells us we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for ourselves. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? Little children, let us love not in words and speech and talk, but love in truth and action. Last year they had this reality show. I don't know if you ever saw it, but they had these millionaires who would go and visit three different places under the guise of learning about volunteering. What the people they were paired up with didn't know is that they had a millionaire in their midst, and they were usually struggling, struggling type of outreach or ministry. And at the end of the show, the millionaire would go and surprise them with all this money from their own pocket, you know, $50,000, $100,000. And that was all interesting. But what was more interesting to me was it always appeared to me as though the millionaire got much more out of it than the people who received the money because they were around people who were giving, who were loving, who were full of joy, even though they had nothing. And you could see this perplexing the millionaire. You're happier than me, and I have a beautiful home on the... But you've got something I don't have, and so you always wondered who was really helping who. Now, there are different definitions of love. And as we take a look at what Jesus calls as love, it's sort of the same thing, isn't it? He's talking to his disciples about judgment. And he says, then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? When was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? 
And the king, Jesus, will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, you are members of my family. You did it to me. So we have these four types of love, and then Frederick Buechner, in his book, The Magnificent Defeat, talks about sort of four levels of love. And he says the love for equals is a human thing, of friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. This is sort of that easy love. And when the world sees it, it smiles. He says, but then, get my slides to work here. But then there's another kind of love, love for the less fortunate. It is a beautiful thing. Josh, can you plug in the sound, uh, by the way? It is a beautiful thing. Love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion. And it touches the heart of the world to love those who are kind of difficult to love. And sometimes those can be even family members who can be more difficult to love. And sometimes when we all do it together, it's even more powerful. I want to show you a short clip from a a video of a baseball game where the national anthem is being sung by a man who is autistic. Whose broad stripes and bright stars starts loving. See how relaxed he became. Even an autistic man was able to relax and become focused, something very hard for him to do. And so there's a love for those who are easy to love, a love for those who are hard to love. But then there's this third love. It's a love for the more fortunate. It's even more rare to those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy for those who rejoice, the love of the poor for the rich, of the black man, for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there's this fourth love, love for the enemy. A love for the one who does not love you, but mocks you and threatens you and inflicts pain on you. The tortured's love for the torturer. 
This is God's love. And it conquers the world. In preparing this talk, I stumbled upon a story from just a few years ago. You can even look at it on YouTube. About a young man, about 15 years old, who wanted to become part of a gang. And one of the things he had to do to to earn the right is he went out and shot and killed another boy about his same age. Didn't even know him, just a random boy. He was caught, he was tried and convicted. And as he's being let out of court, the mother of the slain boy shouted, I'm going to kill you! And then a few weeks later, she went to the prison to visit her son's murderer, just wanting to meet him. She didn't stay long. But a couple weeks later, she came back and spent a little bit more time and then more frequently kept visiting him and spending more and more time with him to get to know him even better. And because he was a minor, he couldn't be given a life sentence. And so around the age of 18, he was going to be paroled. And a few days before he was going to be released, she was visiting him, and she asked him what his plans were. What is he going to do? And he said, I have no plans, no prospects. I don't know what I'm going to do. And she said, well, I know a man who owns a manufacturing company. Let me talk to him and see if I can get you a job. And she comes back the next day, and she says, good news. You have a job waiting for you when you get out. Now, the next thing, where are you going to live? You have family members you can live with? Where are you going to stay? He says, I have nobody in my life. No family at all. Which kind of help you see why he's trying to join a gang. That's the only family he could be in. She says, well, I don't know if you'd be willing to do this, but I have room in my home. You're welcome to come live with me. And you can believe that. So he accepted that offer and he is released. She picks him up, takes him home, and each morning made breakfast for him and sent him off with a lunch and had dinner with him every night. And this went on for several weeks. And then she sat down with him one night after dinner and she said, you know, I just wanted to talk with you about something. She said, do you remember that day in court when I said I'm going to kill you? He said, oh yeah. It was the most frightening thing I've ever heard in my life. Is that what's getting ready to happen now? And she said, nope. I don't need to kill you. I already have. She said, I couldn't stand the thought that there'd be a young man who's out there thinking it's okay to kill someone they don't even know. And so I killed that boy. He's dead, isn't he? And he said, yes, ma'am, and I'm glad he's dead. She said, so I now need you to do me a favor. And he said, what's that? And she said, "I, all I had was my son, and you took him from me but I still would like to have a son I could take care of and who someday might take care of me. And so I'm wondering if you would do me the privilege of allowing me to adopt you. And so the son's murderer becomes her own adopted son. You know, like us. That's agape love, to love one another. So I encourage you to remember love. This is a plaque I made for my daughter, Heather. I always used to say, remember love a lot in the family. And she started using that as her uh, email uh, signature block to remember love. I said a lot of goofy things when the kids were growing up. I used to sing a lot of songs I made up words to. One of our favorites was Chickabacca Lee song. Chickabuckalee, chickabuckaloo, chickabala, hicka hidey hidey ho, hidey hidey ho, hidey hidey ho, hidey 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 ho. Y'all know. Y'all, come on, join in. <laughs> what is that song? 
Well, when they become uh, teenagers, one day they ask Beth, uh, what's Chickabaka Lee mean? You can imagine their chagrin when she said, it means absolutely nothing. Your daddy makes up all kinds of stuff. I don't know what he's talking about half the time. So they began to question all the other silly things that I used to say. Except remember love. They knew exactly what that meant. It meant, remember, I always love you. And it also meant, remember, whenever you're doing anything with anybody, to remember that God loves you and you can love them. To remember typically means to recall, but it's the word member with re in front of it, to give a membership again, to love. Allow it to be long in your life, to give it membership. But remember, love always is going to involve sacrifice. Love is costly. It requires no reciprocation. Love does its best when it's not deserving. When I choose to only be around those people who love me the way I want to be loved, that's not love. Love works better in everything, in business, in government. Right, Carl? In families. We've been designed to love. I think we're here to learn how to do it. That's why I think we're here, to learn how to love. So let have love, have membership in your life. Let it be long. But be careful, though. Loving others can prove to be disastrous for you. And it, you can fall victim to one of the classic blunders. The first is to never get involved in a land war in Asia. And the second, only slightly less well known, is never go against a Sicilian when death is on the line. These are people who watch the movie Princess Bride. I know. What's he talking about? Inconceivable. The third and even less well-known is this. Loving others with only your human love will result in disappointment. Our own love has limits. We run out of it easily, and it won't come back in return, and we'll feel wiped out, we'll feel drained, and then the very people we've been trying to love who have drained us, we start to resent them because they're not loving us back, and then we feel guilty for resenting them because we're supposed to love them. See the vicious cycle we get in? God's love never runs out. He is love. Allow God to love others through you. In the same way, two weeks ago, we heard Corey Ten Boom say, can you forgive? I can't either. Can you love? No, you can't. But God can love through you. A few years ago, I love to read guideposts. There's always some great stories in there. And this one was about a, a nurse who wrote in a, about a story that uh, experience she had. There was a biker who was in an accident and went to the emergency room and then was admitted to her floor. He was a big fella, a real big fella, who apparently had no access to any kind of uh, facilities for personal hygiene. It, it, it smelled as though he hadn't bathed or even changed his clothes for months, if not years. She had to withhold her own gag reflex just to go into the room with him peeling his clothes off of him to clean him up, she almost threw up a couple times. And then she had to step back and she began to say in her, in her mind, she sort of praying, Lord, I can't do this. I'm going to have to find somebody else to do it. I can't do it. And it was as though a, a voice said to her, I know you can't, but I can. I want you to let me love him through you. Will you do that for me? And she said, I will. And so... She got behind him and began to scrub his back, 
you know, the sponge bath to clean him up, just the, the dirt and the grime coming off of him. But as she started doing that, the love of God was poured out into her heart and she began to experience God's love. And all of a sudden, this became a privilege to do. And then she just felt like humming some of her favorite hymns. She was having a wonderful time experiencing God loving one of his children. And then she began to notice this big old nasty biker's body with the long hair and the beard. just kind of shaking and being a nurse, want to make sure everything's okay, came around the front side to see if it, ask him what's okay, but she didn't need to ask him. His tears running down his face through all the grime. And she said, what's wrong? And he said this. I have absolutely no memory ever of anybody ever touching my body with such gentleness and kindness as you're doing now. And so her love and God's love pouring through her was made the difference for her and him. Remember love. For some reason, one of the things I did in preparing this talk was I challenged myself to talk about living in love without using 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not sure why I did that. I think it would have been a lot easier. <laughs> but what I decided to do was take a look at 1 Corinthians 13, but the prelude to it, 1 Corinthians 12, you might be familiar with this one. Now you are the body of Christ, and as each of you is a part of it, and God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Now when I read that and I think of my, my context, this sounds very familiar to me, like one of those corporate meetings where we're trying to get things organized. Now you do this, you do this, here's a new org chart, you report to this person, you handle these things. And the idea is once we get ourselves well organized, everything will be okay. But then the writer goes on to say, having done all that, there's actually a more excellent way. <laughs> After you've got yourself all organized, See, sometimes I've noticed that getting organized actually preempts our ability to love one another because you're in a different part of the organization than I'm in. So if you find yourself in the wrong job, if you find yourself in the wrong kind of work that doesn't suit you, then choosing love will be the best response that will enable you to persevere, to hope and to hear and to bear with others and not covet their positions or their responsibilities. So love is really a choice. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured already, been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, been, who has been given to us. When I talk in corporations about love being a choice, I usually get some pushback from people. And I've learned that when they push back, I've found it has to do with getting married. And so now when people say, oh, I don't know if that's true, I'll say, you're thinking about when you got married and you fell in love, they go, yeah. I always think, I said, okay, so you fell in love. You didn't choose it. You just fell into it. Okay. It's like falling into a, a hole or a ditch, you know. <coughs> then I say this. Have you been married for th more than three years? If they say yes, I say this. That tells me this. At some point, you fell out of love. And then you had a decision to make. And you chose to continue loving. And that love is actually stronger and better than the one you fell into. Isn't that right? I still remember one CIO, chief information officer, looking at me and he goes, exactly what happened. 
don't tell my wife. <laughs> and I said, well, I would suggest that you tell your wife. You might want to be prepared for something, though. She might say, the same thing happened to me. As I fell out of it, and I chose to be back into it. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind is how I remember this verse. For some reason, Heather keeps coming up in my sermon today. When she went to, she went to Calvin College, and she was an education major. She was homeschooled and decided to become a public school teacher. I don't know what's happening there, but one of the things they taught her at Calvin College was, as you look at your students, look at them as though you're looking at the face of God. And that's what, exactly what she did when she started teaching sixth grade language arts. Each of her students she was looking at was the face of God and affected everything that she thought about them, everything she did towards them. And her very first month, brand new teacher, first month there, voted teacher of the month. Whenever the principal would have a, a visitor, would always take to Heather's classroom because she decorated it with love. The kids wanted to eat lunch in her classroom because love is there. They were treated as though they were God's creation. And so I've started practicing this same bit of wisdom. I learned from my kids a lot of things. And so I welcome you to try this technique <clears throat> of how to love others. I hope you're not like me in this way. I am quick to judge people in my head. I see people that are hard to look at, and I just think, you should get a job. You should. I, I'm very quick to do that, and I, I'm just going to confess that here. Don't do that, but if you have any of that happening to you, here's what typically happens next to me, is I get a little tap on the shoulder from that part of me that God put in me, and the tap is basically this. Bill, I love those people that you're judging. And I think, well, then maybe you see something I don't. So let me see with your eyes. And I start to see the face of God everywhere. And sometimes he looks perplexed. And sometimes God looks happy. And sometimes he looks like a meth addict. And sometimes God looks very focused. And sometimes he looks cute. And sometimes he looks like he's waiting in line to get into the Apple store on opening day. Sometimes he looks mysterious. Sometimes he looks perplexed. And sometimes he looks innocent. And other times he looks suspicious. And other times he looks beautiful. And other times he looks angry. Sometimes he looks wise. And sometimes he looks homeless. And sometimes he looks beautiful. So I simply use this technique as an approach of prayer. I just simply ask, Father, I choose now to see these people here as people you love. I choose to see your face in them because we were created in his image and likeness. And when we start doing that, the moment you choose to do that, the love of God will flow into you and it will flow through you and they will become beautiful and God will become beautiful and you will become beautiful. And it will be a beautiful day. Choose God. You choose love and if you choose love, you're choosing God. 
Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.